Welcome to the podcast station where we share exciting stories, interesting facts, lots of laughter, and lots of hope as we talk about caring for our human bodies in the 21st century. We have one ultimate goal, and that is to help you develop a newfound perspective and sense of appreciation for the incredible human body that you're living in. If you would like to join us for more educational courses or professional certifications, see us online at www.holistichealtheducators.com. Great to have you with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. We are super excited to have a guest speaker with us here, Dr. Essen. He is the course creator uh, for a course called How to Read Your Blood Work Better Than Your Doctor. He's a very experienced naturopathic doctor who works a lot with lab results and looking at um, people's endocrine system and their digestive tract and giving them a very comprehensive approach to their to addressing their health. So we're really excited to have him on the call today because when we get our blood work back, there are all sorts of markers on there and they give us the range of what's normal and sometimes we're on the low end and sometimes we're on the high end, but we have him here to talk to us today about what are some of the top things he looks for and uh, and why does he look for those markers? What really is an optimal range? And what's the difference between an optimal range and a laboratory range or the, the lab normal? And then also what maybe does he not pay as much attention to because you really need more information before you draw conclusions. So that's just a quick overview of what we'll be covering today. And we can't wait to have you here, Dr. Essen. So thank you for joining us. All right, fantastic. Thank you, Amy. Um, I do have some slides. I don't know if I can be presenter person here, um, but when I uh, sort of uh, design the, the, the blood work course, I came up with just a, some generalized statements to educate people about, well, what is blood chemistry? Oftentimes it is a mystery. Well, the doctor said this and this and this, but I didn't understand a word he said. And I walked out of the office, he said, I'm normal. I have no idea what this means. Um, and so there's this lack of nomenclature because it's fancy medical terms and the, the, the words are a bit big. Well, then that sometimes confuses people or puts people in that position of the lesser um, that they don't understand, so therefore they should just shut up and do what the doctor says. That happens way too much. Um, and so realistically, this is kind of one of those things where um, it's, a, it's a good idea for somebody to um, become knowledgeable about it. If not as a practitioner who's going to be helping other people with it, just for your own sake, just to be able to understand this is what those numbers mean. Here's what those ranges are. Here's what they're measuring when they have what, you know, what is hematocrit? Well, people hear that term and they wouldn't have a clue what hematocrit was. When you find out what it is, it's actually very simple, but somebody has to explain it first. And so I've got a bunch of that. Um, but I, like you said, I have my little, um, some would call them pet peeves, some, uh, and irritants about how blood tests are both developed, uh, read and interpreted um, that I would also like to share too. Um, so I don't know how I can share, but I think it's, you're co-host now, so you should be All right, groovy. Well, I put it on the, theirs, which is the right one right here. Okay, got it. So share. All right. So these are slides literally from the uh, the, the course. And so I'm just going to go through a couple of them here. Um, you know, there are advantages to blood chemistry. There's a reason why it is the gold standard test is because it's quick, it's easy, it's cheap. You can get results in the ER within minutes for a lot of these things. And they do talk about metabolic markers. How is the blood behaving is, in many times is how the body is behaving. And so it's, it's a fairly um, straightforward deal to say, well, you know, this is important for us to understand this stuff. Um, there, there, though, is disadvantages to it. Um, and, and let's click here. All right. Um, so the normals are not very normal. We're going to check that out in just a second. Um, a lot of the things misrepresent what people believe the title to be saying. Um, hormones are not well measured in blood. I'll explain that. Um, and, and largely, the, what the doctor wants to know from a blood test is a full set of information. But unfortunately, the standard of care and health clinic and uh, hospital regulations would say, well, you can only test these things because a blood result has to equal, you tested it because this person has a symptom. So symptom means I can test for this. No symptoms, I can't test for this. And even more restrictive than that, the insurance companies have basically dictated, here's what you can and will test for. Anything more than that is excessive testing, 
we won't pay for it. And you, the doctor, could get in trouble for testing too many things. And this is, obviously, that's not how one should practice medicine, right? One should want all the information so that you can sort through it. Um, and, and something that most people also don't realize is that when blood test results come back, and those results are in your folder, or those results are on the screen that the doctor accesses in the, in the little uh, you know, the, the room that you're in, they highlight only those things that are low or high. And we'll explain low or high in a bit, but that means that the doctor didn't review anything except what's off. And understanding that there's a lot of scores that you could look at that are within norm that might still indicate some metabolic shifts that one has to be aware of. And that, again, this is not really what you call innovative medicine. And it's become this, even though it was the gold standard, it's become this, unless you're sick enough to treat, you're not acknowledged via the blood test. You're, you're invalidated because it says normal, but you could still have a ton of symptoms and this could portray a whole bunch of things that don't get looked at. And, and this is an issue. Um, let's talk first about lab normals. There's a curve. Bell curve average, you remember these from high school, and there was always that really, really smart person like Amy who always got the top score, and she blew the curve because then everybody else is stuck in the middle, and you get a B plus instead of an A, um, and so this is how they do blood tests. They'll measure the full set of indicators on a blood test. They will then do a bell curve. They'll cut off the bottom. They'll cut off the top and say, well, the middle range is normal. So one of the questions we ask concerning this is, who did you just measure? Presumably, if the blood tests being drawn are used as your baseline population to gain information from, those people got a blood test because they're sick. You're measuring the sick population and taking the common results and making them the lab normal. Now, there's a few exceptions to this rule, like cholesterol. Cholesterol, they've lowered and lowered and lowered the numbers that are high, you know, that can consider to be high based on plateaus of the drug sales. But for the most part, what you, what you have here is a set of sick norms. Now, there was a group, this is back in the 80s, called Balancing Blood Chemistry Seminars. Dr. Harry Eidner, Sr., I should say. Um, Dr. Harry Eidner, Sr., and a bunch put together what was called the blood biopsy meaning that they would do a blood test, look at the numbers, whether they be on the lab normal or not, and then they would do an actual tissue sampling or some other more insightful, more accurate version of here's what would represent in the body what that blood score was trying to measure. And what they found in the CBC and the chem panels is that there's dramatic differences between what lab normal is and what would be optimum for human performance. And so you hear the terms optimum normals or functional normals. That is based on the idea that here's what body tissue samples and more insightful testing, more accurate testing said about here's where your numbers should be versus the lab normals, which are, again, just based on common averages that's saying, well, you're just like everybody else. That doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. So this is one of those pet peeves. In other words, people come back from the doctor's office. Oh, it was all normal. Here, let me, let me show you my test. All the scores are normal. And I'll look at it and I go, well, no, that one's too low. That one's too high. And I'll find, you know, several different scores that are off just based on that difference between lab and functional normals. So this is one of the big things that needs to be done. And in the course, um, we cover those and actually give a worksheet at the end, say, here's the worksheet that says, here are the functional normals. So that you can take the blood test that's received by the patient from the lab translate it over onto the, the worksheet and say, well, wait a minute here. No, that's not normal anymore. Um, so that, that, that's a really, that's one of the best tools in that whole set is just looking at that. So yeah, normals aren't really normal. And that's one of the big things. Um, I should have more slides in there, but for whatever reason, they're not in there. So let me just go back here. Um, problems. So many measurements are misrepresentative. So this especially applies to minerals. That means, for example, you'll see magnesium, calcium, phosphorus in your CBC and chem panel. Well, the issue here is that those are not measurements of what your cells have in them. They do not represent the nutrition that you have. They represent how much your body 
is interjecting minerals into the blood to manage the blood. So your, your, your blood system is guided by a mixologist saying, oh, we just got into a panic. Our adrenals are ramping up and they need more magnesium and calcium to supply the muscles with the ability to contract and lengthen. So you'll see increased magnesium and calcium in people with adrenal issues. Does that mean that from a nutritional standpoint, they're taking in enough calcium or magnesium? No, it has nothing to do with it whatsoever. These minerals are biochemical mixes and injections to manage your metabolism. And yet how many times has somebody come to me, oh, I have good minerals, my, my calcium is really strong. Look, I have really great calcium scores. In fact, it's a little bit over. Ah, okay. Because guess what? The reason that calcium is in your bloodstream is because you're losing bone due to an acidic pH. So if your body has an acidic pH and your body has a very narrow range of what it allows, 7.2 to 7.4, any more acid than that in your bloodstream, your body will go to the mineral bank. You'll use calcitonin to pull calcium out of your bones and calcium being very alkaline is a perfect buffer to regulate the pH of that blood. Now, seeing extra calcium in there means that you're losing calcium from your bones, not that you have a whole bunch. This is a critical sign to say osteoporosis is in your future if you continue to pull calcium to buffer your pH. That's just an example of how these mineral numbers are misrepresenting what's actually going on in nutrition. And so the blood cells don't even, the blood does not accurately portray nutrition. Now, let me back that up by saying that there is a company called SpectraCell. Um, SpectraCell has a patented process where they can take your neutrophils, which are a cell of the body, produced by the body, they would have a representative amount of nutrition in them. They can take those neutrophils, they can put them into different nutritional wells and test, oh, well, here's the, here's the amount of nutrition that that cell had. Those neutrophils have a certain amount of nutrition. And if you're short, then they will have absorbed more of the nutrition in the little well, or if they're satisfied, they wouldn't absorb it. And they can tell you, okay, well, now here's what your cells actually have as nutrition. But you're not going to get that by a regular old chem panel in, in your typical blood draw. Um, so again, that becomes one of those pet peeves of, you got to be kidding me. How Are these doctors not taught anything? Um, you know, oh, our, our little Jimmy's okay because he, his electrolytes are fine. No, you didn't measure the electrolytes. Yeah, that's an incredible point. That's an incredible point. So in your practice, like let's say this is a great example with calcium coming up. Um, how much of your intervention is looking at what's causing this state of acidosis to begin with, or if it's, you know, whether it's stress or pharmaceuticals or um, diet, you know, nutrition, whatever those things are, obviously we'd probably want to decrease that and then ramp up the nutrition and, and the mineral intake on the other side. Can you give us an example of what like a normal protocol would be for something like that? Well, yeah, commonly you're going to find out that the stomach is the problem here at the origin of digestion. Um, there, there's this idea that minerals are suspended in food or what's known as they're in solution. Now, solution means that they are bound with the plant matter or meat matter, whatever, whatever they're in, they're ionically bound within that tissue because they were there as, 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 a, as part of its original source uh, content. Now, when you digest your proteins with stomach, stomach acid, hydrochloric acid, what you are to be doing is breaking down the protein structures, but not the carbohydrate structures. Then that mineral content stays within the, the, the food material. It's in solution. However, let's just say you have a weak stomach or somebody who is on these protein pump inhibitors or uh, 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 proton, proton, pump. Yeah, proton pump inhibitors was the words I was looking for. Okay. So now you're limiting your stomach acid. Now what's going to happen is you can't, with, with lack of electrical charge, ionic charge, those minerals are going to drop out of the plant and become a rock. You could just as well eat some chalk or some ground up clamshells. It becomes an insoluble thing so that the calcium drops out of solution. Now the food is calciumless as a nutrient. Then, and, and you guys talk about this all the time, is the whole idea of that there is the pH via acidifying foods. Stress is another big acidifying factor. 
toxins that clog up the liver and the kidneys will back up acidic waste into the bloodstream and lymph. Those are the reasons why. So if somebody's got a pH problem, the first place I look is the stomach. The second place I look is the gallbladder. Now, getting those two organs to be better at digestion would be the number one thing to do to say, let's manage the pH, therefore allowing proper mineral uptake and pH management that way that not only are we not going to be pulling it out of the bones, we're going to be adding it to the bones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I, I'm just, I literally like the last couple of months, I've been pulling out my hair about the number of people who are on these stupid acid blockers and they're just killing themselves doing it. Yeah. 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 And interestingly enough, osteoporosis is a huge, like common outcome, like long-term side effect of protein or proton pump inhibitors, PPIs for the stomach, just because of what you, I mean, there's a lot of every long-term side effect can be traced back to what it's, what's not happening at digestion that should be happening at digestion in the stomach. So yeah. So cool. So it sounds like you take a step even further back than just what you're eating and you look at like, Hey, how can we get your stomach breaking down food the way it should, you know, creating that, that proper environment. So right. cool. You're Thank probably you. not going to get enough minerals if you eat McDonald's every night. Yeah. So of course you need good food, but you also have to digest it properly. And, and, and this is the misfortune of the American circumstances that, um, you know, we get all these people self-diagnosing themselves with indigestion and then taking these PPIs. It's literally killing them. And now a, a recent step by the insurance companies, they're starting to realize that the class action lawsuits are coming down the road. So now they will, they will no longer pay for your Prilosec, Nexium, or whatever after eight weeks. They're purposely pulling you off of them because it's in the guidelines of the prescription for those drugs that you only are on them eight weeks. And anybody who's doing more than that is endangering themselves. And they say, well, wait a minute here. If we allow this to continue to go on where people are taking them indefinitely, there's going to be a class auction lawsuit and we're in for billions. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll circle back here to the blood markers. Sorry, we're pulling us away from that, but just for context for what Dr. Essen's talking about. So PPIs, uh, proton pump inhibitors, those are um, anti-acid drugs. So for people who experience heartburn, they'll take anti-acid drugs that will <clears throat> immobilize the G cells from being able to produce the amount of um hydrochloric acid that they need to for your stomach to become acidic. And they were originally designed to temporarily like stop acid production so that if there's like compromised tissues that they can heal in, you know, away from all the constant acid. So they were designed like, oh, this person has like a really bad H. pylori infection or some esophageal issue. And we need to down the acid for a couple, you know, a few weeks to a couple months to allow that tissue time to heal. That's, you know, originally how they were designed, but now they're being used as long-term heartburn solutions, which is like not what they're designed for. So cool. We can go ahead and circle back now, but I'm really happy you brought that up. So stomach integrity plays a big role. Thank you. And, and, you know, moving on to another one of the points is, and for whatever reason, they're not in my left-hand slides, they're in my other slides. I don't, I don't know how that works. <laughs> okay. But uh, hormones are very inaccurate when measured in bloodstream. And here's the reason why is that they take whole blood they take those vials and they put them in a centrifuge or this little machine that spins them around in a circle. And as they spin, the heavier part, the plasma sinks to the bottom of the tube. And then the red blood cell portion, which has more fat in it too, is gonna come to the top. Now, in that case, they've separated the blood and they do this because then they can see the staining that occurs when they're looking for a particular thing within the blood. In other words, they take a sample of blood, they put a stain in there. Oh, if it turns purple, then it's this, okay? So they can't have red blood to do that. So that's why they do that separation process. Um, that also derives numbers like the hematocrit that gets you know, that, that separation says, okay, well, there's this many blood cells per amount of fluid. Now, the problem there is, is that when you're measuring hormones, there's two different weights. The weight of the free hormones is very, very light. And so it rises to the top. So the hormones that are active and about to cause activity and reception within a cell, those hormones that are, you're going to feel the effect of them rise to the top. Well, guess what? They throw that top part away after they do it. So all the active hormones are thrown out of that batch. The hormones that are in the clear part, the heavier part are the globulin bound hormones that aren't active and may actually be bound for excretion. They may be used up. They may not be the kind of hormones that would activate your cells. Now, this became an issue, referring back to Harry Eidner, 
And that group that was looking at those, they were saying, well, wait a minute here. We can't get an accurate portrayal of hormones in the bloodstream. So how do we deal with this? Again, you go back to the blood biopsy. Well, this number range that we get in this score for this person, okay, this person has a number. And we realize that they have a condition that we can otherwise measure more accurately. We can then start to get an idea with the compilation of a number of these blood values. Oh, well, then our numbers in a blood test, knowing that's inaccurate, we're compensating for the inaccuracy by making new number ranges. So you can get a portrayal of what's happening in the hormonal set if you're using functional numbers by having that regular old blood test. But again, it's, 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 it, it, it is by its nature inaccurate. Um, and, and so realistically speaking, if you wanted to full proper blood test for hormones, you'd have to have what's called a free fraction test where they do not separate the blood. And I can tell you, you walk in any blood lab, go into any doctor for a prescription for that, they will not do it. That's only for like university studies that they're going to do things like that. So again, this idea here is that um, the testing is sort of one of those where it's, well, here's your range of normal. And we put a little asterisk by that saying, well, kind of, sort of normal <laughs> and, and don't have the, the ability to actually say this is, this is what we want to do. Um, and so from that, uh, we really have to understand that hormonal testing via blood is a little bit dubious and only via functional normals can we really rely on any version of an accurate result. Okay, so main takeaway from this then about hormones is there aren't really many better alternatives that are accessible to look at to assess our hormones outside of for, for when it comes to blood work. But if we do the blood work, just make sure we're comparing it against a functional range instead of the normal range. Is that what I'm gathering? Well, that would be the, the if you're going to be relying on blood tests, but there are other lab tests like salivary profiles that actually do a very good job. Um, also, some of the urinary samples do a better job at hormones. Um, and so... I'll, I have a couple of labs that I work with where people are spitting in a tube or getting this cotton swab wet with urine. Um, that actually, because again, these are cells of the body or there's, in the case of the urine, here's a direct excretion remedy that has those hormones that have been bound and excreted at a certain level indicate an amount in the bloodstream. Um, so those salivary hormone panels are, this is what the body actually has in it. And because they've worked with normals from a more functional standpoint, they tend to also be highly accurate. I would rely on a salivary test more than I would a blood, but you, you know, you spit in a tube, you send it in, and two weeks later, three weeks later, you have your result. Well, sometimes blood gives you the result right here, right now, you know, within a couple of days, you can have those results, and that means that you can act upon that faster. It's also less expensive. Um, you know, there, there's advantages and disadvantages, and you have to understand what those are to say, well, would I rather have more accurate and wait for more time? Or do I need the results now and understand they may not be accurate? Yeah, or just make sure that we, we're comparing them to a functional range. So, yeah. cool. Makes sense. Thank you, Dr. Sim. Did that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the immune system scores. Here's a little, here's how we could take a quick look at a blood test and say, I have this kind of infection or that kind of infection. And this every doctor should know because it's a really easy thing to get a hold of. So you look at your white blood cell count. This is how many white blood cells are running around your bloodstream. Now, we want to see a certain normal range, of course, because that means you don't have an infection, or at least you're in transition from one to the other. That's another tricky part. But if it's low, if your white blood cell count is low, that means they've been working so hard so long that they've worn themselves out and they can no longer muster enough white blood cells to fight the infection. Long-term chronic infection is what a low white blood cell count would mean. Versus a high white blood cell count would mean it's just recent. It just came upon you. Your body's just pumping out those white blood cells like crazy, trying to kill off this more recent acute infection. Now that's one thing to look at. Then you compare and contrast that with the neutrophils and the lymphocytes. Neutrophils kill bacteria. Lymphocytes kill viruses. So if you were to have, say, for instance, a high white blood cell count, recent acute infection, and you had a high lymphocyte count, that would mean that you'd have a acute recent viral infection. And correspondingly, neutrophils would be low, you know, anywhere from normal to low. Now switch that situation around. Let's just say you have a low 
white blood cell count, long-term chronic, been around forever infection. And the lymphocytes are on the low side and the bacteria is high. The, the neutrophils are high. That means you've had a long-term bacterial infection that has worn your immune system out. So it's literally look at white blood cell count, high or low, acute or chronic. We then look at neutrophils, lymphocytes. What's the relationship between those? What's the teeter-totter look like there? Meaning that there's only so many immune cells that can be divvied out by the immune system at a time. If you've got a, a viral infection, you're gonna transfer Im immature immune cells and make them into lymphocytes to fight the viral infection. If you have a bacterial infection, you're gonna take those immature immune cells and move them into the bacterial fighting neutrophils instead. But you can't do both at the same time. You can't have both of them high. One will be high, necessarily the other is low because there's only so many resources to go around for that immune system. So that's, that's the easy way to look at just two, you know, three numbers and say, well, it's virus or it's bacteria. And that would change then how do you address that? Because you treat viruses and bacteria very differently in terms of how you'd work with different, say, essential oils or homeopathics or nutrition, herbs. Different ones are good at different things. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that when you get somebody with both, um, they'll have both infections. Say you're testing on the AO scan and it says, well, they have Epstein-Barr virus and, uh, and you know, Baronavirus and RSV. So you have a bunch of viruses there. But then you look at their bacterial list and it's 10 bacteria long. Well, which do you do? Now you wouldn't, if, you, if they had a blood test, wouldn't that be nice to know which is affecting them more? The AO scan just says, here they are, 100% or zero. This exists in the body, but it doesn't give you a scale of measurement to say, here's how bad they are. So with AO scan, you could do this blood test and say, white blood cell count, high or low. Neutrophils high, neutrophils low. You go back to the vital scan and, and, or back to the, in the first thing, CBC chem panel. Does it say anything about white blood cell count? Blue, red, high, low. Does it say anything about neutrophils and lymphocytes? It can move you into a position of understanding which one is affecting the body more. The bugs are all there, but you need to understand the pathology of them. Yeah. So that's now how, how about chronic, how about chronic infections or sorry, not chronic infections, chronic diseases? Well, chronic is, yeah, chronic is going to tend to be that low white blood cell count. You look for other things about the body being worn out and can't produce enough. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's all of these scores that are in the low degenerative uh, malnourished side where the body has used resources for such a long time. It's, 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 it's dipped into the pool and there's no more left in the pool. Yeah. I was asking about like, like certain cancers and things like that. They'll look for immune markers. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the immune markers will be low, like some of the immunoglobins. Uh, will be low. Um, it depends on which kind of disease they have, obviously. Um, okay. But yeah, IgE, IgD, IG, IgG especially. Um, if it's anything digestive, you're going to see low IgA. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of these other immune markers, like some of the cytokines, um, will originally be very inflammatory. But then if they end up getting low, that's because the, the immature granulocytes can't be made fast enough to convert over into whatever end product immune cell that's desired by the body. Mm -hmm. So then you end up with immature responses to that disease because you're, you know, you're trying to fight and eventually you're fighting with your weakest fighters. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Um, cholesterol is another one. And this could be like a whole, you know, two hour session really. Um, but cholesterol is not the big boogeyman that everybody thinks it is. Um, cholesterol is an anti-inflammatory molecule. It's the baseline product that helps you make hormones. All your hormones are lumped onto a vehicle of cholesterol to put it all together. And so to say that this is a problem that for your cholesterol just be, or for your heart for just because cholesterol is high is ridiculous. Um, half the people who have heart attacks every year have normal cholesterol. If you have a supposed ca causal factor and only half the people have a condition of that being out of normal, that is not adequate for diagnostic, diagnostic criteria. But yet somehow they, they, every single patient who has any version of heart attack or other cardiovascular issue, and they put them on statin lower, you know, statin cholesterol lowering drugs. As a matter of course, that's standard of care. You will put them on cholesterol, they say to the doctors, or your cholesterol management. Um, yeah. it, it literally has nothing to do with it. What has to do with it is age. And by age, I mean advanced glycated end products. Amy, do you understand what that is? 
Yeah, they cause a lot of inflammation in your, as they're floating around your vasculature system. Right, it's creme brulee. Yeah, it's your little meat. Before, it's, right? your, it's your meat. It's this. It's the delicious barbecue chicken, little burnt <laughs> part. Or actually, is advanced glycated end products that would be sugar crystallization, wouldn't it? Yes, and so and then the meat, the meat or the protein has another name for it when it gets burnt. Well, it, it still is. It still is advanced glycated end products. But when you put things like barbecue sauce on the outside of your meat and then over barbecue it, and it oxidizes. But I use the the creme brulee as an example. Um, the creme brulee is protein and fat structured like your cells. And then you sprinkle sugar over the top of it and then you oxidize the sugar by burning it and it turns hard and crusty. So advanced glycated end products are the oxidized sugars that are on the outside of what's supposed to be a nice soft pliable cell, but that soft pliable cell turns hard and crusty like the creme brulee's crust so that you then end up getting attrition or more damage to those tissues. Those cells become cracked. Now that sends out messengers, hey, help me, I'm being damaged here. So what does the body do? It sends the number one band-aid that you have, cholesterol. So it, what happens here is that then the cholesterol covers the wound, but the wound isn't going away because the sugar keeps coming in. And then the wound keeps uncovered with more band-aids and more band-aids and more band-aids, and it forms a plaque. Now, the, the, the thing is here, you're blaming the Band-Aid, not the wound. And so taking cholesterol away does not have any beneficial effect. The only thing that the statins drug do, and this has had several studies done on it, they are anti-inflammatory. That's the one thing that they are good at. Now, they're anti-inflammatory, but they have a huge number of side effects. You can get anti-inflammatories that do better than the statin drugs. But again, you don't get high cholesterol by eating cholesterol. That's another one of the things that just causes me to go into a rage. They did an 11 year study using all of Karen's tax dollars that she pays in to try to figure out how cholesterol influences, you know, cholesterol consumption influences cholesterol in your bloodstream. They found out it had no bearing whatsoever, but you know what did cause high cholesterol, especially the bad cholesterol? Well, that would be sugar, mm -hmm. you know? And so this whole, rigmarole about you know low cholesterol foods low fat diet is just a joke in fact the low fat diet is a risk factor for heart disease yeah so it's just, just I, a really bad idea can i put this in in on in another sentence just like recap it in my own yeah. words yeah because i learning about this concept was a it made a lot of sense to me um after you explained it so what happens is picture you know, like our vasculature system, you know, the, our arteries and veins and capillaries, like they're tunnels. And then all of a sudden we, there starts getting this debris on the roadway that's damaging the tunnel. And all of a sudden there's like, you know, a, a refrigerator falls off someone's truck and like, and hits the side of the tunnel and some bricks fall down. So all of a sudden your body goes and sends cholesterol to that area to patch up the brick falling down on the inside of the tunnel. It's like, oh, we got to patch up these bricks. And then all of a sudden another refrigerator or another big tool set falls off this other person's truck and boom, it hits the side of the tunnel and more bricks fall down. So then your body sends cholesterol to go patch up where those bricks fell down. And all of a sudden you're getting these bigger building and building patches. And what's causing this um, you know, those bricks falling down are things like heavy metals, chemical toxicities, advanced glycated end products, and also um, insulin, chronic levels of insulin. Insulin is a great hormone that we need to get sugar into our cells. So I'm not anti-insulin, but chronic levels of insulin can, will also cause inflammation. And so um, that's what he's mentioning here. Now, all of a sudden we're eating sugar all day long. There's insulin in our bloodstream all day long. That's like making the tunnel get even smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because it's inflammatory. So now you have all these patches of cholesterol and in, in a state of inflammation and your body keeps sending cholesterol out to patch everything up. And then when the inspectors come to figure out what's going on, and they're like, hey, what's all this patched up gooey stuff? That's cholesterol. That must be what's causing their heart disease. Come on, you guys, shovel that cholesterol out of here because that's what's causing the problem when really the cholesterol was your body's solution to trying to patch up the walls and 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 cool things down and decrease inflammation. So 
anyway, this really important concept to understand because we want to be careful about not ingesting those other chemicals and those other harmful things in our food that are causing high levels of cholesterol. And like you already reiterated, there are plenty of sources of animal um, animal cholesterol. And your body makes cholesterol. This is the, the biggest. This is the biggest problem with statin drugs. Is it inhibits your liver's ability to produce a molecule you need to have stable hormones. So it's going to exasperate if someone's already dealing with hormonal imbalances and then they go on a drug that makes their bodies incapable of making the base molecule of all cholesterol-based hormones, it's going to exacerbate any hormone imbalances they're dealing with. So this was, that's the, that's just a little side note about cholesterol there and how we feel about it. Um, and we could get a little bit worked up, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, so when you're looking at blood markers and you see high cholesterol levels, I mean, this is part of the lipid, lipid panel, I'm assuming. Yeah. What do you care about then when it comes well, to the lipid panel? The first question I ask when somebody has these cholesterol numbers is, where's the source of inflammation? If they have this high cholesterol, the body is responding to something. What is it responding to? The cholesterol is a guide to say, here's our problem. Now, one of the other situations that um, occurs is, let's just say you have a blood sugar management problem, hypoglycemia, insulin resistance. You're automatically going to have higher cholesterol. Women, as they phase into menopause, are going to have higher cholesterol almost automatically. Why? Because they're used to their hormone levels being way up here. Now, you know, on a monthly basis, they're going up and down, whatever, but their cholesterol levels here. And the body says, I have to make cholesterol as a baseline molecule to put the estrogen and progesterone onto. You don't just make progesterone and estrogen right out of your uh, ovaries. They have to be combined with cholesterol in the liver to be released as the finalized hormone. So you have these higher levels of hormone way up here, and then menopause hits. The levels drop. Well, the body doesn't quite recognize that. In fact, the pituitary gland for eight years doesn't necessarily recognize that menopause happened. It's going to still send out hormones. It's still assuming you're going to have a cycle. So what does it do? Oh, we don't have enough hormones. We can't perceive enough estrogen or progesterone in the system. Well, maybe if we make more cholesterol, there'll be more hormones. So as women phase into menopause, up goes their cholesterol. And of course, then they shove them on a you know, statin drug to make the cholesterol go back down. Does nothing for them and makes their hormone life misery. There's also then the idea of the thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone also produced in the liver, in the thyroid has to go to the liver to be conjugated. And it's in the T, you know, the conjugated T3 gets lumped onto that molecule of cholesterol. So somebody's hypothyroid the cholesterol numbers will automatically go up. So this is just another one of those things that you ask the question why when you see cholesterol, you don't respond by saying, well, let's lower that cholesterol. So that, that's the ridiculous model here. But you know, understand that the statin drugs were a failed heart drug. It was about to be taken off the market. They said the only thing that we saw in the clinical studies that this did was lower cholesterol levels. It didn't prevent heart attacks didn't prevent strokes, wasn't good for the blood system, horrible for the liver. But what did it do? Oh, it lowered cholesterol. Oh, you know what? Those plaques are made of cholesterol. Hey, here's our new cash cow. And that, that's literally how that went. And, and that's, you know, just again, ridiculous and stupid. Um, you know, I can't tell people what to do with their prescriptions, but if somebody said for me to go on a cholesterol lowering drug, I said, are you kidding? That yeah, I'd drop it like a hot rock. Um, and, and I will mention, Dr. S and I are not anti-pharmaceutical drugs overall, overarching. Um, these are just two. We've just touched on two proton pump inhibitors and statin drugs that are two of the more most harmful ones that someone could be on long-term for their body. I just wanted to make that clarification. Yeah, by far more dubious. And as time goes on, um, the, the science and the studies would uh, back us up in that. Um, the other thing is the size of the particle. If you get your lipid panel done, you know, Total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides ratio. That's the most common test that people are going to see. That didn't measure enough to know anything about your cholesterol panel. That has no bearing whatsoever. Those numbers mean nothing unless we measure the particle size of those HDL and LDLs. What does that difference make? Amy talked earlier about the damaged tunnels with all these wounds and patches and all this other kind of stuff going on there. Well, if you imagine those wounds as holes in the side, if you have really small particle-sized cholesterol, it can get down in that hole and stick. Well, then the next one that's really small comes along and sticks to it. The next one comes along and sticks to it. 
But what instead if that you had big beach ball sized ones, they can't fit down in the hole, they'll bounce right by. In that model, you have small particle size, large particle size of both LDL and HDL. The, the potential risk factor for heart disease and cardiovascular disease is in the particle size, not the total number, not the simplistic measurement of just HDL and LDL. You could have a very high HDL, which the medical model would view as very beneficial, but if they're all really, really small, that's a danger to you. You could have really high levels of, of LDL, but if they're big, there's no risk to you whatsoever. So good and bad cholesterol is not HDL, LDL. Good and bad cholesterol is the particle size, small or large. Small is bad, large is good. This is another great misnomer. And I've sent any number of people to their doctor saying, this cholesterol means absolutely nothing unless we get a particle size. They won't test them because wow. they know that they're going to come back and it has all to do with particle size. The one time it ever happened, the person actually did have small particle size and we need to work on their blood sugar management so to increase the size of their particles. Small particles are made by sugar. Hmm. So again, it's um, just another thing that just kind of drives me crazy on a daily basis when I see this, but this, this is what we have to learn about and deal with. Now, someone asked, what test can you ask for to get the particle size? Yeah, I mean, you literally just ask for a particle size evaluation of your cholesterol. I mean, mm. You can do the regular five numbers, that's fine. But mm. adding on particle size is what's necessary to get a true evaluation of your cholesterol as a cardiovascular risk factor. Otherwise, those five numbers are meaningless. Okay. So okay, triglycerides is important. <laughs> triglycerides is important. So yeah. Do you want to touch on that really quick? Well, tri triglycerides, what is that? Three sugars. Okay. Three sugars eventually end up being stored energy. This is a little capsule of three sugars put together that you store as fat for use later as more energy when you're short of food. Right. And so let's just say you're in a starvation situation. You haven't eaten for a couple of days. You're, you're breaking down triglycerides to provide you with the ability to move around and do whatever you need to do. However, most people don't have days and days without food. Most people are eating food altogether too much. And in that case, then your triglycerides build up. Now that ex excess amount of stored sugar that is a you know, fat then becomes something that is caustic to the inner uh, blood line, the, the blood vessels have a really hard time with the, uh, the, the chemical content of those triglycerides and will it'll cause inflammation in the blood vessels. When we have inflammation in the blood vessels, what happens? Cholesterol goes up, plaquing forms. So triglycerides are the real reason why people have heart attacks in terms of any version of lipid problem in terms of, of that, but it's all based on sugar. David Letterman. Oh, I wouldn't say it's all, I mean, triglycerides are fatty acids. So yes, your body can convert excess sugar into triglycerides, but you can also just get that from fatty foods in general. So I'm just saying like, whether it's from sugar or from like fatty foods eaten with a lot of carbohydrates, the point is you are getting too many free, free floating triglyceride levels. Yeah, your body has to store it somehow. So here's our storage medium. Um, David Letterman had a heart attack, very serious when he almost died. His, his cholesterol numbers were perfectly normal, but his triglycerides were over 500. They couldn't measure it any higher. Whoa. That's that was the recipe for heart attack, not the total cholesterol, HDL or LDL. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. this, again, this is just another one of those little idiosyncrasies about blood testing, where if you know the secrets behind it, you can have greater insight than what a medical doctor is going to look at. Well, here's what's highlighted. H HDL is low. Uh, LDL is high, here's a drug. Mm -hmm, that, that, mm -hmm. That's their entire thought process all in one little bit. They don't even think about the idea of what this all really means and what it's all about. Mm -hmm. um, so cholesterol, again, is one of those things that as I look at them, you need to, to be able to defend yourself to say, no, I choose not to have a cholesterol drug because I know that the source is too much sugar. Or in the case of triglycerides, exercise. When yeah, I'm out yeah. biking, my, I, I have this phrase that goes, man, I'm burning tries. Burn Every time try. I'm biking, I'm taking, I, I don't eat before I bike. I have no calorie content coming in. And I just, every, every bit of calorie I burn, I'm also burning triglycerides up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, so movement is huge for decreasing um, triglyceride levels, just exercise, like, you're, that, like he already said, you're literally burning them when you do that. Um, and then also just eating, eating a balanced, balanced diet is going to be huge for that. 
Um, intermittent fasting is also another great thing for that. So intermittent fasting, balanced diet, adequate hydration, and regular movement are all going to help with triglyceride levels. Um, just while we wrap up our time here, are you going to touch on some of the top markers you look for um, that you, we've done a lot to kind of debunk how much pure faith we place in blood, blood tests, which is good. You know, right. like it was important to cover like what we are like, oh, these markers, here's why that's completely incomplete information until you have, you know, more of the larger picture. So it's good we covered that. But, um, and AO people, thanks for mentioning that, Tammy. Let us know if we can keep on going with what markers we do, you do look for where you're like, okay, this does mean something to me. Like I want to pay attention to this. So would you mind touching on a few of those, Dr. Arson? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to the anemia profile, the, you know, the hemoglobin platelets, the MCV, MCHC, MCV, these are things that tell me the behavior of your red blood cells. And I like to see strong numbers there. Um, and, and there is nothing in your blood chemistry panel that's going to have a more direct relationship to nutrition than that. Uh, meaning that, you know, you see all these uh, numbers that are relative to anemia and you go, wow, if those are doing well, at least the body's getting oxygen. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of people who aren't getting enough oxygen. And we have to, you know, uh, persistently look at B vitamins and, and uh, iron as a supplemental source. Or could you switch their diet? Or could you get their digestive enzymes to break their food down more fully? Um, those, are, those are issues to be worked out. But um, I like to see somebody's not anemic. And when I see those good blood scores, I can say, okay, check, that's done. That's a big deal to me. Um, the liver scores like the GGTP, the ALT, the AST are also things that are really important. Um, those are things like the GGTP, you very seldom actually see it anymore. Um, that's the performance of the gallbladder. So if I get a test with the GGTP in it, that means that this is demonstrating adequate bile function. That means that, hey, the gallbladder is now dissolving our fats where the ALT and, and the uh, AST are more, are we detoxifying chemicals? Now, again, those are important. I like to see a good, healthy, clean liver, but they always omit the GGTP as bile being important because guess what? Oh, you don't need your gallbladder. Well, yeah, you kind of do. Um, talk to somebody who's missing their gallbladder just today. And of course you have to find a way to stimulate more bile flow for them. Um, but now what they're doing is saying that, well, the bilirubin is a good enough score to measure the gallbladder, so we'll just go with that. But this, it, it isn't as direct an impact as GGTP, so I like to see that one as, if possible. Um, you know, it, the thyroid one, every, there's rampant thyroid problems, and I practically jump up and down and celebrate when I find somebody with a normal thyroid anymore. Um, and it's, it's, you know, and there's other reasons why now there's even more autoimmune thyroid happening um, as of late within the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> that, wait, wait. Okay, yeah. yeah I mean, that, 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 the, the hint is there that there's a great deal more of autoimmune thyroid going on um, and that's not being caught very much. It's not being measured very much and I'm finding it in so many people. And so again, when I find a normally functioning thyroid, it's like, oh dude, you actually can have a metabolism? Good for you. And you have oxygen? Oh, wow, we have a lot to work with here. These are great. These are things that would be looked at as, as you know, really strong markers for saying somebody's baseline health is taken care of. Can you just repeat those three markers one more time? So it was, what were the three? Oh, for, for, well, thyroid, you'd be looking for um, the TSH, T3, T4, uh, the TPO and TBG antibodies are extremely important. They should be measured with every thyroid test. They are not, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. T3 uptake is also important. Um, that's the thyroid thing. When you're looking at the anemia, it'd be hemoglobin. Do you want to stop sharing your screen really quick? Because I think I got confused because I was trying to follow you on your screen. And now all of a sudden we were talking about anemia, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, GGTP is, again, liver. So oh, okay. we, have, yeah, we have that. <laughs> And you can substitute in bilirubin uh, as a, or urobilogen in, 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 thing, in case of the, the urinary system as to, well, here's how the bile is doing. I like GGTP, maybe I'm just old fashioned that way, but I think it's more accurate, more insightful. Um, the ALT and AST, the transferase enzymes, are about how well your liver is capable of detoxification. If they're mm -hmm. low, 
you can't detoxify well enough. If they're high, you're trying to detox something, you can't get it done, and they're really accelerated. Mm. So, that's, you know, some, some version of chemical exposure or something like that is, t- is taken over, or mm-hmm. potentially hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, the, the anemia scores are super important. There's hemoglobin, platelets, MCV, MCH, MCHC. Um, those are the ones that kind of tell you the, the appearance, the behavior, the size of the red blood cells and how much hemoglobin is in them. Um, and, and those are relative, of course, to if they're low, then that ten, well, it tends to mean is that you have not enough hemoglobin around. If they're too high, then that means the blood is so thick and goopy, you can't move it around and still therefore can't deliver oxygen to the cells. So are you nutritionally deficient that you can't hold enough oxygen or are you so overblown on some of these scores that they're too big and goopy and you can't move oxygen around? In either case, your cells are gasping for air. If, you, if your cells are in that state of, I can't get air, you're not going to accomplish anything with anything else. What are you, herbs, what's your top thing for anemia then, or for issues related to red, red blood well, cells? Not if, if it's nutritional deficiency, then of course, we're looking at the iron content and it, can you get the iron from food? Potentially, yes, you can. Red meats, uh, dark leafy greens. And the one that everybody forgets about are the red, orange, yellow fruits and vegetables. The thing that makes many of those of uh, uh, plant matter orange red orange or yellow is the rust in them or the iron uh, so people often forget about that part um, so if that's the case then we can get the iron in that way and then of course b vitamins and again some of the same foods the the you know red meats the dark leafy greens the red orange yellow things um, b vitamins are also going to come from things like nuts and seeds uh, so there's a good amount of b vitamin out there to be had you just have to be able to digest it. Here again, we come back to the strong stomach or not. Now, if they're high, this means that the first thing I think of is hydration. Um, if your hematocrit is pathetically bad where you have so many red blood cells and not enough plasma, one of the simplest solutions is drink more water. And oftentimes that'll do it. Sometimes two more essential fatty acids will help to retain more water to keep in the blood as opposed to the water just passing through. Um, but if you have, uh, like I say, an MCV, mean corpuscular volume, this talks about the size of the red blood cell. Now, in other words, mean meaning average, corpuscle meaning red blood cell, volume, how big the balloon is, okay? So if your score is high, that means you have so much volume per red blood cell that the red blood cell is too big. If that red blood cell is too big, it can't fit down into the capillaries. It will literally stay stuck in the outer vasculature, less than capable of moving oxygen out of it into your tissues. So, but then the corresponding opposite of that is an MCV that's too low. Little tiny blood cells that because they're so small, they can't have enough hemoglobin in them to carry a significant amount of oxygen. So we wanna always have that Goldilocks in the middle range to say that the red blood cells are the 0.72 microns that they're supposed to be. They have an adequate hemoglobin in them. They can move to the cells, deliver the oxygen. So what do you do for that to help balance MCV? Um, if, if it's, well, I mean, again, if it's, if it's the low version, you're still working with more things like the iron and B vitamins. You know, those are gonna nutritionally simply create larger blood cells for the most part, unless you're talking about an autoimmune condition. Now, then on the high side, if there are big goopy blood cells that are they're, you know, too large, um, that's gonna be some sort of inflammatory process. So this is where things like ginger and turmeric and those kinds of anti-inflammatories are gonna do a great job. And again, mm-hmm. reverting back to essential fatty acids, making sure you have the right fats to make the membrane of the cell proper, um, mm-hmm. that's gonna help out too. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like what you do like about the blood chemistry tests we use today is to measure actual blood cells. <laughs> I'm like, you're going over all these blood cell like calculations. I'm like, are you using a blood chemistry test to evaluate blood cells, Dr. Essen? Because that exactly. would make and, so and I would much love sense. the situation of I had somebody's test in front of me and then I could take their blood and put on a slide and look at the microscope and say, well, yeah. look, yeah, here's here's the correlation. Yep. Here this number 
look look at over here. This is what that looks like. That would be really cool to have both of them going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like just to summarize for everyone else, we've covered so many topics today, but a lot of what you know, we began talking about other things that aren't that your your bloodstream may deliver, but they're not inherently a blood cell. There's four main blood cell types: white blood cells, red blood cells, plasma, and platelets. And so those, your red blood cells are the nutrient delivery system for your body. So your red blood cells are delivering oxygen and nutrients all around. Um, uh, especially oxygen is the, is the top one, but um, some of the nutrients as well. And then your white blood cells are killing things that shouldn't be there and keeping your immune system in check. Um, your plasma is providing the fluid for everything to float around in. And then your platelets are there to help patch up um, any lesions in your body where um when you get cut and what would you say platelets i actually don't know as much about platelets but what are there any other major i, I call them blood speckle um you know if, if you get a hole in your wall you know you pounded a nail in that's not where you want it to be you go get the spackle and you take your little scraper and you pu- push it in there to temporarily in the yeah. case of the blood heal a wound so yeah you cut yourself while cooking the first thing there to start the coagulation of the blood to start healing the wounds and stitching it back together are platelets. Now, other things are gonna come into play. If I, you know, There's all kinds of fibroids and things like that are gonna come in and complete the job, but you need to, in an emergency scenario, rush platelets to the area of damage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are like the four main blood cell types or, or, or four main things that make up your blood, I should say. And then all these other things are floating around. You have your hormones floating around in your bloodstream. You have your minerals floating around in your bloodstream and you have food particles floating around in your bloodstream and you have, invaders, pathogens, you know, bacteria, viruses that come into cells floating around. And then along with um, chemicals, you know, that we may eat and other toxins and toxicants. So, so you have your, what's supposed to be in your blood and then, you know, nutrients, minerals, and hormones, and then things that aren't supposed to be in your blood. So what we've just been talking about this whole time is sometimes we can't always rely on a blood chemistry test to get a truly accurate assessment of those minerals and of those, of those hormones, um, uh, and even of the nutrients, but sometimes it can be um, really helpful to just look at the blood cells themselves. Even when it comes to measuring blood glucose levels, the, um, A1C measurement is much, you know, much more reliable to get a long-term image of blood glucose levels than just like your blood glucose snapshot in the moment. And that's a measurement related to your red blood cells. So just, Amy, Amy, do you know what you're measuring when you measure A1C? Yeah. Can I, uh, how much sugar, I'm going to say it. So A1C, yeah. How much sugar gets stuck to your red blood cells? And so advanced glycated end products. That's what you're measuring. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. What if somebody's blood sugar management is actually really good and they take in very little carbohydrate and they still have a high A1C? What would be the reason why? Yeah. Advanced glycated end products are sugars that are oxidized by free radicals. So you could look at somebody's A1C score and say, well, wait a minute here. Maybe they have a high free radical level. Yeah, we assume they have diabetes, but what if their blood sugar is perfectly managed? They could so they're eating their... the right amount of sugar, but it's getting oxidized in their bloodstream due to the free radicals that are exactly. also in their diet so or their life. have metal or chemical toxins or something like this. What? Nobody I didn't feel like that reaction could happen in your bloodstream. Now it makes sense because sometimes I, I had a client lace recently who had um, a pre-diabetic A1C measurement, just barely in the pre-diabetic range. She's like, that's so bizarre. I really don't eat any sugar or like a high carb diet at all. So that's that true. would be a good time to talk about free radical intake because she might be eating a normal amount of carbs, but if there's a lot of free radical damage causing oxidative stress in her, her bloodstream, it could be producing advanced glycated end products that are then sticking to her red blood cells that are causing a higher A1C score. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Whoa, okay, please throw it in the chat if you've had your mind blown at any point today. Um, but that was a really cool concept for me to learn about because that was, she was so baffled. She's like, how could that, how could I be in the pre-diabetic range? I'm so careful with my carbohydrates. So that was awesome. Okay, well, that was awesome. Are there any other main things you'd like to talk about before we wrap up the recording of this and then we'll go into q and I'd say let's go to Q&A. That's the funnest part. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Essen, for recapping this and for ending off with the markers you do look at. So that is empowering to understand and uh, we can't wait to keep learning from you. So thank you very much. 
You bet. Hey, thank you for joining us. I hope you had as much fun as we did. If you would ever like to connect with us in person or live online for webinars, course certifications, events, conferences, parties, go ahead and check out our upcoming event schedule at www.holistichealtheducators.com. We would love to connect with you. We also host weekly live question and answer sessions. Until then, have a spectacular day.